the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who haven't heard the show before, you know, welcome. Welcome aboard. This show is in a couple of parts. The first part of the show, we usually talk about estate planning and elder law. And the second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion. But today, actually, we are going to be talking about a little law and history. We're, we're talking to a friend of ours who's an attorney, Stephen Weingrad, who does art law. And, you know, that and that comes in our estate work every once in a while. We have more than a few cases that are dealing with the, the chain of title or the provenance of art. And it, it really is a, an interesting part of the law. And we're going to be talking to Stephen about it. He's got more experience as far as litigating those titles than I do. Um, meanwhile, estate planning, the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, and that's very important in today's world with COVID and everything else, avoiding going through court, avoiding going through probate because the delays are extraordinary. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. So we're going to be answering a few questions. Accompanying me today is my wife, Beth. Yes, I'm here. And my son, Michael. Thanks for joining us, everyone. All right, so well, Otto's here too. Uh, we're all here today. He's, he's just looking at us like, what are you talking to me about? Um, all right. So, Beth, what's the first question that's on deck? All righty. My brother is executor of our parents' estates. Both parents are now deceased. The trust provides that all assets in the trust are to be divided equally. Can he sell property and put the value of the property in the estate pool without my signature or approval? Well, the sh- the short answer to that is yes. Now, I'm I'm a little confused because we're talking about your brother's the executor and the assets are in the trust. So I assume he's also the trustee and the executor. And I know people get confused about those titles. You know, the trustee controls the assets in a trust. The executor controls those assets that go through a will. And in, in most cases, in a lot of families, the the parents that choose the executor trustee are going to make them the same person, power of attorney. But they are different titles. And some families that, you know, they break it up. They have one person as executor, one person as trustee, another child as uh, health care proxy or power of attorney and so forth. But, you know, it depends on the parents and what they want to do. But, yeah, if, if your brother is in charge of the estate, if he's the executor, if he's the trustee, 
and the assets are in the trust, then he has the authority to sell the property. Now, he's got an obligation to divide it according to the terms of the trust equally or whatever. Now, I, I think it would just be common sense that he not sell the property without consulting you and giving you an idea of what the sales price and what's going on. He doesn't necessarily have to, but then at the same time, you could sue him at the end for not being fair to you. So, no, he doesn't have to consult with you. As a general rule, I would tell executors, trustees, hey, let everybody know what's going on. Tell them what your offers are, why you're going to take this offer over another offer, and, and keep them informed. Not the chaps absolutely have to, but a lot of times good communication keeps things on, you know, the point where we stay out of court later. And if you're doing a trust, the whole idea behind doing a trust is to stay out of court, to, to have the, the estate, the trust administered um, in, in such a way that we don't have to go through court. And 95% of the time that works. But every one, once in a while, the, the, the brothers, the sisters, the cousins who was ever involved in the estate, they don't get along. And unfortunately, we do end up having to, to, to go to court. And I think that's our next question, Beth, isn't it? Yes, it is. My eldest sister is the executor of our mother's estate. She found additional money that belonged to my mother. She is not following my mother's will and dividing the additional money between all the siblings. Instead, she said she's keeping it for herself because she's suffered the most. What can we do? Well, it sounds kind of strange, but you can remove her as executor trustee, depending again on the circumstances. Um, she's not allowed to just do something because she wants to do it, and she is held to account for any money that she receives is what we call a fiduciary, whether it's through an estate or whether it's through a trust or whatever. And if the trust says equal shares among the siblings, then she's supposed to divide it equal shares among the siblings. Now, if let's say this extra money is $5,000 and he had four or $5,000 worth of expenses, that might be a little different and we might put a different slant on it. So, But yes, if money comes into a trust, the trustee or the executor, if it's a will, should divide the assets according to the terms of the will or the trust. And, you know, if not, the judge, the surrogate, can remove the executor trustee. And they're, they're pretty strict. You know, an executor trustee is supposed to follow the terms of the instrument that appoints them to be in charge. It's called a fiduciary, a person you trust. And if you can't trust that person, then you may want to remove them. And, you know, this happens every once in a while. It's happened a little bit more in today's world. A lot of times, sometimes a fiduciary, the person in charge, has a criminal record. And sometimes we can remove somebody for having a criminal record. In a lot of cases, in, in most cases, we can remove somebody from having a criminal record. And, you know, if somebody's going to steal, that's the way to go. Try to work it out first. You know, maybe write a letter or something first. Maybe have a lawyer write a letter first. But, yes, your siblings should divide things according to the instrument, whether it's a trust or a will. Michael, how does, uh, how does somebody ask us a question over the email? If you want to reach us to send us an email question, and, you know, we may get back to you privately via email if it's something of a more personal nature, or you may hear it answered on, on air. You can reach us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's spelled Connors, C-O-N-N-O-R-S, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. The good news is we are getting a lot more emails. And I think it's, you know, not all of us are used to sending things by email, but I'm very happy that our audience is getting to, oh, okay, it's easy. And, um, and you can put on your email whether or not you want it to be aired or you just would like our response to your email privately. 
Okay. And then, Michael, you know, like a lot of people, people ask me every day, when are you going to start doing seminars again? I said, well, right now it's pretty hard to do a seminar because how do you do a seminar in a restaurant with 35% capacity and so forth and so on? And, and, and Michael, where can they view our, sem- our seminar digitally? Well, this year, you know, well, last year, actually, we taped a seminar for, you know, for the sake of our clients, people who are interested in hearing more about estate planning and elder law. Um, if you want to find that, it's very simple. You just go to YouTube.com, which is as easy as it gets, and type in Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar, and you'll see Dad right there at the top of your search results. Okay, and can you repeat again if you want to email us a question, where, where can you email us a question? For email questions, you can reach us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. All right. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of our email questions, and he reads the questions for the benefit of his listen listeners. And you can hear Kevin McCullough each Monday through Friday at 7 o'clock on 970 The Answer and Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock on 570 The Mission. So we're going to turn it over to Kevin McCullough. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Uh, time to check in once again with Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan, our uh, leading expert on all things related to estate law and elder care and uh, how to handle the end of life issues that uh, so many people sometimes seem to overlook. Mike, this week's question comes from Lisa from Brooklyn. She says, Mr. Connors, I have two people listed on my POA, power of attorney. If the first person can't act on my behalf and the second person lives out of state, how does that work? Mike Connors. Well, that's not as big a problem as you might say. Some, somebody out of state, you still can conduct business out of state. You know, we're not in the days of the Pony Express. There's, there's emails, there's faxes, you know, things can be scanned and sent over. So you can easily conduct business in another state. But, you know, you can also add somebody else to the power of attorney. You can add a third person or whatever. So it, it, it's not a major problem. Being out of state, people say, I'd say, well, my niece lives so far away. She lives in New Jersey. It's not that far away. You can conduct business long distance in today's world. Yeah. But if you if you want to feel uh, more comfortable with having somebody close by, just add them to the agreement. Correct. Yeah. Well, friends, maybe you're thinking about what you need by way of power of attorney. Uh, there's no one that can set that up easier for you and uh, more thoroughly than Connors and Sullivan. So why don't you call them? 718-238-6500. Make sure your end-of-life uh, legal needs are cared for. 718-238-6500. You, you don't want to fail to plan. You want to make sure that you've got uh, everything taken care of for those that uh, come after you. Uh, you can also send your legal questions. AskMikeConnors at gmail.com. Uh, and he will answer a question each week here on Kevin McCullough Radio. And he will also uh, answer them on his show, Ask the Lawyer. That's Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570 and FM 102.3, The Mission, WMCA. And Sunday mornings starting at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, as always, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. 
now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer again with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. All right. So, again, we're taking email questions right now. Beth, what's the next email question? Okay. This is from Susie. My mother-in-law has lived with my husband and me for seven years. She's disabled. She is responsible for her expenses, but she pays nothing to live with us. She wants to apply for Medicaid. The Medicaid form asks for household income. Should we answer the questions on the form based only on the income that she gets from disability? Or is her eligibility actually based off what we make? As far as Medicaid is concerned, it's only based on her income. You're not obligated to support your mother or mother-in-law. Now, at the same point, depending on how much income she has, one of the things you may want to consider is charging her room aboard because, let's say for the sake of argument, if you have Medicaid, in, let's say you have income from Medicaid, uh, let's say she has $2,000 a month, $1,000 a month pension, and $1,000 a month Social Security, technically she has too much income for Medicaid. But if we put the the income in a pooled income trust, let's say she has $2,000, we put roughly $1,000 in the pooled income trust, you then can charge your mother, mother is it mother or mother-in-law, I'm sorry? Uh, mother-in-law. You can charge your mother-in-law approximately uh, $1,000 a month room and board, and that comes off her income, and then that makes her eligible for Medicaid. Now you don't necessarily have to do that. You could, um, you could use other expenses. Just use it directly for food or whatever. And and let me just explain with the pooled income trust because a lot of people don't really understand this. For the sake of argument, technically, if you have more, and I'm using round numbers, but if you have more than nine hundred dollars a month income, and you want to apply for Medicaid home care, you're not 
eligible technically for Medicaid home care if you have, let's say, $2,000 a month income. So what we do in that case, we set up a pooled income trust, and then your income over the Medicaid amount, which is roughly $900, so in, let's say if it's an even two, we put $1,100 a month in a pooled income trust and use that to pay your expenses. Let's say your rent, if you own a house, great. You pay the real estate taxes, the insurance, the cable, electric, gas, and so forth. So in, in this way, we can get somebody on, on home care Medicaid no matter what where their income is. And I should make this announcement. You know, we've been talking about the Im- implementation of new rules for home care Medicaid and when are they going in. Well, originally we thought it was going to go in October 1st, then it was thrown back to April 1st. And now it's apparently thrown back to July 1st with some speculation that there are not going to be any changes until January 1st. And, and what does that mean? Well, let's let's stick with July 1st because that's certain, that's definite. So let's say if, if you can get all your assets in a trust by the end of June, well, I take that back, by the end of May, then you can apply for home care Medicaid on July 1st. So the the look back period starts on July 1st. It may be January 1st. And I know it's difficult because things are changing. You know, there's a edict from the Biden administration that there'll be no cut in benefits or whatever till at least January 1st. So apparently that may hold everything up till January 1st. But I'm, I'm still going to go by July 1st. If you're in a position, try to get all your assets in a trust before the end of May. And in that way, you can apply in June and beat the deadline before July 1st when the rules may change. And you can call our office and we'll try to give you updates on that. But right now, as far as we know, the the rules officially change July 1st. But at the same time, they're probably not going to change till January 1st. But do not procrastinate. And here's the thing. The application should be in before the law changes. So if the law changes on July July 1st, the application should be in before June, which means you have to get your assets in a trust before the end of May. So your deadline might be May 31st or whatever, and we can always try to do something. But if if you're tentative about applying for home care Medicaid, now's the time to do it. And, and one of the reasons, too, you, you want to do it, the, the eligibility for Medicaid, depending on your physical condition, changes, and it's going to go against you after, you know, after July 1st, after that date, if you go on, let's say if you need housekeeping services or somebody to shop for you, uh, after July 1st, that's no longer criteria whether you should get home care Medicaid or not. So if you want to get an application, if you're thinking about it, you want to get in the system, I strongly urge you, think about it, doing it now, do it before, you know, in effect, try to get assets in the trust in May. And there's no reason if you start in the middle of March or the beginning of April, you can't get all your assets in a trust in May, and this way you can apply for home care Medicaid on July 1st. And if you have any questions about that, you can always give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Listen, we're going to take a, a short break in a minute, and then we're going to be talking to our buddy Steve Weingrad about, you know, artwork. Hi, this is Patrick Wayne. I had the good fortune to be raised by a man of strength and courage, a man of true grit, My father, John Wayne, died of stomach cancer in 1979, and in his characteristic style, he ignored advice to keep his disease quiet and campaigned publicly to encourage preventive treatments. 
He inspired our family to carry on that mission. And today, the John Wayne Cancer Institute at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California, continues to take bold steps in cancer research. The John Wayne Cancer Institute has developed novel approaches to detect cancer, establishes therapies to boost the immune system to fight what my dad called the big C, and initiated less invasive surgeries. We've made significant advances in treating melanoma and breast cancer. All this has been made possible by my father's legacy of determination and a community of supporters who have helped expand upon that legacy. For more information, visit www.jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, ordinarily, you know, on the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law and history and so forth. And we're going to take a little bit of a detour today. We have a, you know, a friend of ours, Stephen Weingrad, who's an attorney who does art law, so to speak. And, you know, we were talking in my office not that long ago on, on one file. And you mentioned something in history that a story that I found fascinating. Stephen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, it was nice of you to introduce me as a heart lawyer. <laughs> After 50 years of practice, I feel like I've done every kind of law that you can think of, but I'm specializing now um, in transactional artwork uh, and litigation, artwork litigation and insurance claims. So that's broad enough to... Um, to keep me busy. Huh. So the, the case I mentioned to you was, it was a transactional case where um, a, a client of mine had purchased a uh, painting believed to be a, a Van Dyke uh, original. So when we got around to researching it, um, the painting was called the Savage Sisters. And Savage was a family name in... in uh, England uh, in the 1630s, and uh, Savage himself was uh, the king's first council. That would be King Charles, the one who reigned for 20 years and then was beheaded. So the painting surfaced at an auction house uh, down in Delaware, and um, in tracking the provenance, it was being sold as an unrecognized uh, early British painting uh, that had hung over a restaurant bar for um, approximately 70 years. And, uh, you know, I want to interrupt you slightly. Sure. Can you explain to our audience where provenance is? So the, especially today where it's so easy to copy uh, art, any kind of art, the the provenance is the history of the piece that follows it around and gives it its authenticity. If it hung in a museum and it's a known piece that's been there for a century, so you know that that was the piece that was put there by so-and-so, and you track it by its, uh, uh, its history. That's the provenance. And um, frequently on the older pieces, there's always a break in the provenance, and uh, that's where you lose track of reality and uh, authenticity. So in tracking this piece, 
we we um, were really surprised that when you put the photograph on the internet, you found the same piece at the National Archive in uh, uh, in London. And uh, then by following up and checking the um, provenance of their piece, uh, it was a Van Dyke painting of the two savage sisters um, painted um, in the 1630s. And this was a period of time when um, King Charles I was... Um, actively uh, persecuting uh, the Catholics and uh, attempting his uh, Protestant Reformation. And uh, his first attorney was uh, the uh, father of these two women in the portrait. And the, his wife was the queen's first lady. And there was a scandal that went on when the paintings were being done. The, the savage uh, mother ordered two paintings from Van Dyck. Van Dyck had established himself in London uh, and became the king's painter after he did a famous uh, hunting scene. And the, if the king liked it, uh, in those days they, they couldn't do a digital copy. The king ordered six copies of a painting for distribution. And Van Dyke had a, a factory, not unlike uh, Andy Warhol, and he hired, at that point in the early 1630s, he had six or seven uh, assistants. And the way they worked it was the same way that um, uh, Andy Warhol did his factory he would get the idea, the concept, he would lay it out, and if there was some particular detail in the face, he would do that. And then the fill-in, the gowns, the background, the trees, with clouds, birds, whatever, were done by the assistants. And uh, Van Dyke had an assistant named Lally, and Lally was uh, running his shop, um, and um, Van Dyke finished one of the two paintings, and delivered it to the castle. And they loved it, and they were proceeding to to do the second one. And at that point in time, things got rough, and Van Dyke went back to, uh, to Brussels, where he was from. His wife lived there. And um, the second painting sat unfinished for several years while the king persecuted the Catholics. And his... First Council, Savage, moved to Paris to escape it. His wife went to prison. The queen put her in prison where she stayed and suffered. And she, there are letters still today existing from the First Lady to the queen asking and begging to get out. But because they were uh, married by a Catholic uh, priest, they were persecuted. And so... The second painting um, never really got finished while Van Dyck was was uh, in England, and Peter Lally uh, finished it 
at some point and sold it, and it eventually ended up in the National Archive in London. The original, which was hanging in the castle, was left hanging over the fireplace when the castle was ransacked by the people in the town protesting uh, the Catholic contact of the uh, family. So they raided the castle, and when they saw the painting, they didn't take the painting. They, in those days, they were desecrated by putting a knife cut in the eyes of the people in the picture. So the two women pictured in the picture are have their eyes cut. And, and they weren't cut out. They were just cut. And the picture was left behind, and the rest of the castle was, was ransacked. After, now, and that was probably the Roundheads who did that, I would think. Probably. Yeah. Okay. You got to put your two cents in there. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think it's two cents because Charles Charles the First's wife, if I'm not mistaken, was a Catholic. Yeah, and what happened to her? Well, she got exiled to France. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, what continued was the uncle of Savage eventually took possession of the castle and the painting ends up and shows up again in the provenance in the uncle's uh, basement of his castle and it has to be part of the castle inventory because in, the, in those days, not unlike today, the inventory, the uh, possessions of the uh, of everybody to get a value to fix a tax. So the painting shows up in the inventory. Uh, every time they run it, it's in the basement. It's in the basement. And finally, at the turn uh, of the uh, 20th century, uh, taxes got very high. And they decided to do what a lot of people in America do. They empty out their basement and they sent, they found the painting and it sat there for uh, 250 years. And they sent it to Paris to an auction house. So at that time, uh, news of the auctions in Paris uh, came to uh, America. <clears throat> and where the Empire State Building is sitting today used to be Astor, um, a building owned by Jacob Astor. And in that building was an art dealer at 34th Street and 5th Avenue. And the art dealer had as a client the um, wife of the owner of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. And she contacted him by letter. These letters still exist in the provenance. And she requested him to buy some painting, paintings uh, at the auction for her and to have them shipped to him and then to clean them and frame them and restore them. And so there's another letter where she writes, will I have it for my New Year's Eve party? And he said, no way. Ah. And, so, and so finally the, the painting arrives. They bought it at auction in Paris. Nobody knew what it was. It was filthy. It hadn't been looked at in 200 years. And they ship it down to um, uh, Baltimore. And uh, she was very wealthy, obviously. She, uh, she lived in town in what would be the equivalent today of uh, five townhouses together. 
and she hung it in the uh, among her other paintings in the townhouses. And then, about twenty years later, she passes away, and the and um, she's left the property to become a museum with the pictures, except the pictures that were damaged or didn't have a, a good uh, authentic appraisal were sent out for sale. And so an auctioneer picks it up and uh, uh, it was uh, unauthenticated, no provenance, and nobody bought it. And so after the auction at a typical uh, after auction sale, the painting went to my client and uh, at a very low price. And that's when the research started and we, we discovered that the painting was the one from the fireplace with the cut in the eyes. That's the original Van Dyke and that the National Archive in London has the copy by Peter Lally. And that's the only way to distinguish the two paintings. Otherwise, they're the same. So it had now a filled-in provenance, which gave it a substantial value. And uh, we helped market it, and we helped transport it to England. We had it uh, looked at by some uh, authenticators who were almost as old as the painting. <laughs> and they, I, I can still picture somebody who was probably 95 years old lying on the floor <laughs> with a microscope in his eye looking at the, the brush strokes. And so we did sell it, and it was a great success story. And I'm happy to share it. Uh, I'm one of many uh, and that does not involve litigation. On the litigation front, we we are litigating tens of millions of dollars worth of art claims currently and uh, my one of my uh, most unique situation is a, a an attempt to recover 60 million dollars worth of art that is in New York that's being secreted in a warehouse that is undisclosed to anybody in America except the judge so for the first time in my career of a half a century, I am suing the judge and <laughs> having uh, never experienced this before, uh, finding out that um, the judge knows where the art is and my claim is to get him to divulge the location so that I can put a lien on the art with the client's consent to pay my fee. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it's a little convoluted, <laughs> but I like to finish with that one because that's a, a fascinating... Um, well, well, let, let me ask you something. Let me ask yeah. you a couple of questions. Like the, the, the artwork that was stolen by the Nazis, how, how does that work and how does it play out? All right, the, not, the Nazi theft um, is something that I personally don't deal in because... You have to realize it, it could take 30 years to uh, process a claim. And actually, most of the claims are being resolved in, the, in this uh, century. 
have been litigated for 30 years or litigated and lost and then relitigated again and then laws have been changed to allow uh, people to recover it. And the, of course the most difficult part of the Nazi loot cases is that the the people who own the art and enjoyed the art, just like you have your collection here in your wonderful office and, and studio, um, the the people who owned it are all gone. They were gone like fairly quickly. It's so sad. It is so sad. And so it's an area of the art that uh, is depressing. However, if you're a young lawyer and uh, there is still tons of unrepatriated Nazi loot and um, there's lists of it and the trick is to uh, do the provenance. You have to track it down to where it was stolen from and then what happened to that family and then who the heirs are and what happened to the descendants of the heirs. It's a real. It's more for your kind of a practice <laughs> when you're dealing with with uh, a lot of people who are not here anymore. Yeah. So, but it's a fascinating. It's a it's a fascinating field. There's a lot going on in the arts. Well, let me ask you something. You, you obviously you're in our office, and you know I have some artwork that was given to me by various people. I don't have a chain of title. I don't have a provenance. So, what if I ever want to sell it? Which I don't. But what if I did? So with with any valuable painting uh, or piece of art or sculpture, uh, you start out with a bill of sale. So even at a flea market, if you're buying something that you think might have value, you could ask the person at the flea market to take out their their piece of paper with their name and address and say, I hereby sell you this little sculpture. And I have bought sculptures at flea markets. And did I save every piece of paper? No. <laughs> and are Not they human va- nature. <laughs> yeah. Are they, are they valuable? No. But there are uh, frequently people who say, I bought this at a flea market and it's real, it's authentic, and I know it is. And so to start with, if you have the flea market slip, you can go back to the flea market operator and find him and say to him that, uh, jewelry you sold me in a box that uh, what estate did that come from and then you can track down an estate track down an estate lawyer track down his court files and then you can find out that they in fact had it in the estate which would give a second layer of provenance and then from there if you're lucky um, you know I, I had a um, a transactional piece from um, a princess, Diana, wore an earrings and a necklace to an event. And she loved the set, but she sent the necklace back for an adjustment. And then she died. So her brother never paid the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars <laughs> oh, for the goodness. for the necklace, but he did pay for the earrings that she wore and kept, and so we were reselling the um, the necklace, and so they had uh, the receipt from the jewelry shop 
showing that it had been uh, loaned out for her to wear on a certain occasion. And then they had a photograph of her wearing it at the event, <laughs> which which helped, which tracked it back to the jeweler who made it. So that's a short provenance of an important piece. And that's that's what art is all about, the, the uh, being able to, to track it. And it's very important, and it's very important for the value. On the other hand, if you don't care, you take potluck, you can sell it as is and let some younger uh, art collector uh, suffer with the, the research, which is very difficult. Right. Now, if somebody has, uh, you know, what kind of cases are you interested in right now? If somebody wanted to call you, where would they call you? Where's your office? So uh, for the first 50 years of my practice, I was in the Empire State Building on the 77th floor. And I think I got as many clients as I had tourists coming up to look out my window. <laughs> and, and my office was always open to tourists. And then we had, um, we had a lot of interns from around the globe coming there, and they all loved the office. But once the Empire State Building decided uh, they to turn the 77th floor into sort of a bed and breakfast. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. So they, I think somebody has a bed in my office, and oh. they stay overnight <laughs> there. I'm not exactly sure of that. But in any event, I decided not to renew the lease, and I opened up in Manhattan, down the block where I've lived for... Uh, since 1962 at uh, 233 East 35th Street in Manhattan. And so I live there and I have the office on the first floor. Oh, nice. And uh, so I, I walk to work down the spiral. Very uh, nice. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful practice and uh, I have a beautiful garden there and um, I have some lovely staff and um, and it's, it's a beautiful practice. If anybody wants to contact me, I'm I'm listed Weingrad and Weingrad PC. Stephen Weingrad, I've been happy to be interviewed <laughs> nice. here this morning. Very nice. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, goodness. Okay. So, you know, it's it's, it's something stories. outside our, you know, realm or whatever, so to speak. Wait a Let me ask you one question. Estate taxes. Do people always pay estate taxes, inheritance taxes on this stuff over the generations? So... And is that a from, factor? From my understanding, because I would never cheat the government, <laughs> uh, the estate tax game is played with art. And it, it's, it comes into, if your estate is taxable and you have a big collection of art that's very valuable, the name of the game would be to get it appraised down. And there are licensed appraisers uh, who can evaluate it. And there's different ways that people look at art to come up with a value. It could be uh, uh, market value. It could be uh, intrinsic value. It could be immediate resale value or auction value. And all these different values are all different and different factors. And they have to consider the actual market, um, uh, whether something is popular or sought after in today's world, and art goes in and out. Some, some, somebody came in with a, a stamp collection uh, of American and Brazilian postage stamps. And so um, 
you can, if you're familiar with collecting postage stamps, you realize it's a dying uh, habit or, or pastime. And when I was 13, I had a stamp collection. It's in my basement, and it isn't worth the postage that oh. is printed on the stamp. And I did once pull some stamps, mold stamps, and sent it to a lawyer on the outside of an envelope. He told me he's going to save that envelope. He loved it. <laughs> so, you know, that's how valuable that was. <laughs> on the other hand, but for estate tax purposes, I would appraise a stamp collection at zero. And on the other hand, if you have expensive paintings by well-known artists, you uh, have to have it appraised uh, differently. And and uh, the same thing is going on when people donate art. And they do transactional donations for uh, 501c3 corporations. So if you're donating to a museum to get a tax break, uh, you have to have an appraiser. And the appraiser will tell you what, uh, what value you can deduct from your taxes. And there's an advantage there that that would be irrespective of what you paid for it. So it would go by the current uh, fair market value and the uh, and different appraisers would have different opinions. And the question becomes, does the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, accept this particular appraiser's opinion, and some of them are like a shoe-in, a push-through easy, because they are well-known and respected. On the other hand, I'm sure there are other types out there who would uh, pump up your value so you get a bigger deduction and hope not to get an audit. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't do anything like that. Well, but, wait, I I have a very important question. Yes. You were talking about your stamp collection. Yeah. Well, toy soldiers, are are they going up or down in value right, these so days? So you see, you, you're asking a lawyer, not an appraiser. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I did have a client who had a toy store, and he had a cabinet for toy soldiers uh, collectibles. And, <laughs> and I remember him well, if he's listening. I didn't forget you. I know you. <laughs> I know you moved upstate, and I'm not mentioning your name. You won't get any phone calls. But he did. He did have um, a water damage case, and the landlord had a busted pipe, and so this was an insurance claim for art, and it did get on the toy soldiers. Oh my goodness! And, uh, okay. You know, while the soldiers may be impervious to water, the the setting and the glue and the the decorations and the trees sure. and the cotton and the, uh, so then so then if if the value of toy soldiers is declining and there happened to be a flood someplace you know someone yeah, might come out ahead interest are going up in value so that's <laughs> that's common knowledge just get on ebay you can see you can see this is a needle in the side over here right, we're having right. a good time I would say we were going to break out the wine here. <laughs> well, here, here's something out there. You guys, if you ever want to see part of our military miniature collection, you can schedule an appointment in our Brooklyn office, and we got a couple of thousand on display here. So, Listen, our esteemed friend right here doesn't realize that I have to come over to the offices on Sundays to deploy the troops. Very there rarely. You go. Oh. There you go. <laughs> 
But the beauty of it is they don't eat much. That's true. That's true. No, you don't have to worry about Napoleon marching on his army, marching on his stomach. That you don't have to worry. They have to be dusted once in a while. That's it. I guess we're running out of time. But, oh. Stephen, thank oh, you no. very much for being on Connor's Corner. Oh, this has really, really, really been a pleasure. And thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back again to Ask the Lawyer. Thanks again to Stephen Weingrad for, you know, talking about art history. You know, when we started talking about King Charles I and Cromwell and whatever, one of the best movies on that period, in fact, one of the only movies that I know about that period is Cromwell, starring Richard Harris as Cromwell and Alec Guinness as King Charles I. And I think Alec Guinness does a great performance as King Charles I. And you know, there was a TV movie a few years back, remember, where uh, Rufus Sewell played King Charles II, and with Diana Rigg was his mother. I remember that. Yeah, and that, that was a good, you know, it was a very interesting time, because England was going back and forth between Protestant, Catholic, you know, Puritan, Protestant, Episcopalian, Catholic, or whatever, and and things went back. And, and if you read some of the histories of some of the great English writers of that time period, they would change their religion depending on who was the king, you know, it was, it, you know, it's just the way it was. And of course, if you were church of England, um, you know, it, I don't want to say, you know, the difference between that and being a Catholic wasn't that great back then, as far as your religious the traditions were traditions the same. and so forth, you know, yeah. it was pretty close to the same, but, um, it, it was an interesting time, you know, both, you know, no matter where you were, you could have been persecuted by somebody. Right. And and the and it also, you're talking about that English spirit for rights of the of the individual, the common man, um, as opposed to the the king being above the law. You know, they they didn't like that very much. And I mean, so much of what. Was, was transpiring that era with the religious wars and everything else is what drove so many people across the shores to the United States at the end of the day. 
because for all the, you know, for all the lip service that were given to individual rights, it wasn't something that materialized fully in England until much later. So people who craved that kind of stability ended up setting up colonies over here. And that was their dream. That was their vision. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to our ancestry, Newfoundland, you know, Sir Humphrey started uh, Newfoundland as a Catholic colony way back then in those time periods. And that's why, to some extent, there were a lot of Irish people that uh, emigrated to Newfoundland back in the 1600s and 1700s, including our ancestors, that were there at least in the 1700s. When I don't know, we're sure what date they first got there. It, uh, I mean, I've seen plantations with um, Kennedy in particular. Your your grandmother was a Kennedy, and with Kennedy plantations, and they were small up in Newfoundland, but it was it was little farms. Early 1700s. So we know 1755, there was a conflict going on. But the Kennedys were there early on. There were there were fishermen and sealers there for... Okay. Well, in any event, I think we're running out of time. Oh. So we'll see you next week, same time and places. Thanks again for uh, 970 The Answer and 570 The Mission for allowing us to be on this in these time waves for an Hooray. hour. Thanks so much we for joining us. Here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.